morning, church. My name is Amy Frankie. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Romans. If you want to follow along, you can get out your Bibles or your phones or your iPads and follow along. Um, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Romans chapter 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a bond, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with the power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning once again. For those of you that were not here this morning, earlier, uh, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you all. We are in the um, in the second sermon of our series through the book of Romans. We're calling it The Reason for Grace. And uh, we are focusing three, uh, spending three whole weeks on these introductory verses because um, the introduction really does set the tone for the rest of the letter that Paul is writing to the church at Rome. There's a lot of really important things here. I want us to focus on just a couple of key words this morning. Uh, And the words are the word apostle and the word prophets. And uh, as I was writing this sermon, I was getting pretty excited. And I realized this idea has a very special place in my life and in my heart. And uh, I think about this sermon uh, as the sermon that can keep on giving. And uh, I think what we discussed, if you sort of latch onto it, and if you can run with the application, and you can sort of embrace it for yourself, it's going to be a gift to you for the rest of your life. It's not going to be something you have to think about much. Just You just got to believe it. You got to kind of run with it. And if you do, it'll give to you for the rest of your life. So I'm pretty uh, uh, stoked to share this with you. Okay, two points. Words and the final word. Okay. First, words. Verse 1 has the word apostle in it. Uh, and it's a simple word. It means to be sent or... Oh, no. All right, just so you know. I had a bunch of slides and pictures today that I wanted to show, but that means that our computer is broken. That was a Greg sign to me that we're not going to be able to do it. The computer was lasting about 10 minutes at a time, and then it was shut down. So, all right, we'll have to do it without the images. Um, Ah, that's such a bummer. Okay. The word apostle. This word is a pretty simple word. It means to be sent or the sent one. And it's sort of a technical word. Back in the day, if you were an apostle, you had zero authority. (coughs) 
All right. People listening to this on audio will have no idea what's, what all the commotion is about here. Okay. Uh, it means that it's a technical word. And if you are an apostle, it means that you have no authority at all except the authority of the one who sent you. And so if you are an apostle of Jesus Christ, you come bearing the authority of Jesus to deliver his words or whatever his message was that he wanted to send through you. But you couldn't add a single word or a punctuation mark. You were just a pure vessel, a messenger, a conduit of the one who sent you. Okay? There's a similar word uh, found in verse 2. It's the word prophets. And this word literally means to be an interpreter. Therefore, it also came to mean spokesperson. Now think about this. If you are an interpreter, right? You have all of this implied authority. You're not necessarily an apostle. You're not like this technically sent person, but you're doing the work of an interpreter. That means the person that you're speaking to as an interpreter, they have no idea what this person who just spoke to the interpreter has said. Only the interpreter knows what the original speaker was saying. Right? So if you were all English speakers and I'm preaching to you in Korean, I would have an interpreter. I can say something, but this interpreter actually has final say, don't they? They can add jokes in there. They can translate things loosely or tightly or literally. That's sort of in the power of the prophet. And so you become a spokesperson for the one that's originally speaking. And that's what prophet literally means, to be an interpreter. It also implies that there's a gap, right? There's a gap that the interpreter is called to stand in. You can't just uh, leave this gap because if there's a gap, then the message doesn't get across. And the job of the interpreter is to stand in the gap between the audience and the speaker, now, as I was studying these words, what was interesting to me is this. God, being God, has the authority and the power and the ability to just show up or to just speak or just act. I imagine that's true. But God chooses not to do that. And I find this to be consistent in my life that God is almost never going to just show up. He is never going to just speak or just act because God's chosen means of revealing himself, and you may or may not like this, but his chosen means of revealing himself is through people. Whether they be technically apostles or prophets in this case, and even here in verse 2, it says, Holy Scriptures, whether it's through the Bible. God's grace to us is not conveyed through a vacuum, but through tangible, living, and alive conduits. Now, you think about that for yourself and your life for a second. Is that true? What are the primary ways that God has spoken to you and has revealed himself, his words, his heart, his will to you? 
For me, it's through people. And it's through the Bible. And it's through my life experiences. It's through nature. It's through tangible conduits. It's never through a vacuum. The point is, you need prophets in your life if you are to hear from God. If you pray to God and say, God, I want to hear from you. I need to hear a word from you. I'm discouraged in my heart. I'm confused about direction in my life. I'm lost. I'm weak. I need help. God, speak. Show yourself. Reveal yourself. And the way, the primary way, That God is going to do that in your life is through prophets in your life. Through apostles. Now, as I said before, I don't know if you like that or not. But I love that. I love that God is going to speak to me through people. And here's a little conflict of interest example. You need preachers in your life. You know, there's a lot of uh, sort of new trends in the church world these days. And one of the trends is getting rid of the pulpit. And it's getting rid of preachers altogether. Can you imagine church service without a preacher? Say no. I need my job. (laughs) They're, They're actually even getting rid of Sunday services altogether. They're getting rid of the institutionalized church altogether. This is a new trend. If you want to read about it, there's a book called The Revelation by George Barna. Okay, if you don't want to buy it, there's one in my office that I hate this book. It's trying to unemploy me. But I know that I need sermons in my life. You know, I'm a sermon junkie. I listen to sermons all week long. All week long, I'm downloading sermons and searching for good sermons. And even for this sermon, I listened to several sermons on these passages to hear what other preachers had to say about it. And in the process of doing research, I I was experiencing all sorts of sort of the voice of God in my life. I'm convinced that Preaching, you know, it's a different medium. And when I'm sitting in your seat, my disposition is different. It's different than when somebody's trying to talk to me over a cup of coffee or sitting on a couch. There's a greater openness that I experience in my heart. And when a preacher speaks, something sort of just sinks in in a different way. Right? So I believe in the pulpit ministry as uh, complex and as imperfect as the pulpit ministry is. But the primary way that God speaks in my life, uh, the, the primary uh, uh, prophets, if you will, in my life are through mentors in my life. I really, really believe in mentors. That God is going to do ministry to me. That as I experience the presence of these mentors in my life, I experience the very presence of God. I really do. If you said to me, Peter, you get to pick one thing to you know, be stuck on this island with for, for the next 20 years, what do you pick? I pick mentors. I want mentors in my life. <clears throat> um, there's a, um, a formative leadership book that I, I have uh, studied several times. And uh, this book that uh, was written based on a huge research project. And they did this research project of all sorts of leaders all throughout history, throughout denominations. 
throughout cultures. And they listed out these leaders into these thousands of leaders into two primary categories. Leaders who finished well and leaders who finished poorly. And they said, here are seven things that all leaders who finished well had in common. You know what that was? The priority of being mentored. And then in this list of five things that all leaders who didn't finish well had in common. Do you know what the number one characteristic was? Unteachable. Absence of authority figures in their life. There's nobody speaking into their life. Number one. The book is called The Making of a Leader by Dr. Robert Clinton, if you want to read it. Okay? So what I want to do now is I want to tell you sort of a, a long segmented story. I want to list out some of the mentors in my life. And I, I hope it uh, speaks to you. And uh, some of it will be quite vulnerable, I think. Um, okay, the first thing is I had an experience of the voice of God speaking into my life this week. I was at a leadership conference uh, with the Doves and Kevin and some other folks from this church. And... Um, I was reading Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 2 during this conference. I'm going to read it for you. It says this. There is a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted. Isn't that wild? There is a time to, for things to be born. But there's also a time when things are supposed to die. There's a time to plant. You do all this work. You prepare the soil. You pick out the plant. You plant it. Labor. Sweat. Heart. And then after you have invested all of this energy, there's a time to uproot what you planted. You've spent all this energy. You've got to spend more energy to uproot it. And that is the will of God. And it's a timing issue. And I was meditating on this verse. And as I was rereading this and uh, thinking about it and praying about it, I felt in my heart, in my spirit, whatever you want to call it, in my brain, that God was speaking to me. There was a convergence of thoughts and experiences and books I had read and voices and things just kind of came together. And I had a moment of clarity. I thought, oh my gosh. God, you just spoke to me. And then right afterwards, you know what happened? I fell asleep and I took a nap. Because I had peace in my heart. God spoke. You ever have that moment when the Bible is a prophet in your life? That God just speaks to you through scripture? It's powerful. It doesn't happen every day, even if you read it every day. But once in a while, the the moment of clarity visits you, right? Okay, uh, second, let's go to um, my slide with Dave's. These are the two Dave's in my life. Uh, the one right next to me is a very good friend of mine. His name is Dave Swaim. He took over the Covenant Church that I planted in Boston. Uh, my, my final act of hiring him uh, to replace me. And uh, thank the Lord it was Dave Swaim that took that job. Because he is the smartest human being I've ever met in my whole life. 
And all those who have met him have told me the same thing. He is really, really, really smart. His mind works so fast. And I want to say this just as as a way to honor him from a distance. But I have learned more from Dave Swain than I have from anybody else ever in my life. And his personality is really strong. And so he and I can really kind of go at it and have a good time. And God has used him over and over and over again to speak truth into my life. But when I first hired him and he came to uh, High Rock Covenant Church, uh, he would hear me preach and stuff. And one day he said to me, Peter, I got to give you some feedback. I said, yeah, you always give me feedback. He said, no, you're not going to like this feedback. I said, okay, shoot. And he said, I know you preach a lot about grace. And I don't think you have the capacity to understand this right now. I think maybe in a few years you will. He said, but your sermons, even though the content is gracious, your style is really works-oriented. And it leaves me feeling guilty. I got so angry with him. I wanted to fire him on the spot. And I wrestled with that sentence for years. Years. And then the penny dropped. It was a really, really hard few years. Because I just thought about him. And every time I was preparing a sermon, which was every week, his face would pop up. And I saw the face of this prophet in my mind. And I was angry with him. But it's transformed my preaching than any statement, more than any statement that anybody's ever made about my preaching. That's Dave Swain. Next to him is Dave Olson. He was my uh, last supervisor when I was the director of church planning. And when I was a church planter, and uh, I should say a struggling church planter, for some reason, he came out to visit me in Boston and then in New York on a regular basis. He gave me a lot of time. And every time he was, you know, sort of near in the neighborhood, he would call me up and I would go out to where he was and I would see him and he would buy me lunch or buy me dinner or buy dessert for Susie. And he would speak at my church retreats. He would just invest in me. And then one day he called me up and he said, Peter, I looked out over the covenant looking for good leaders, and your name popped up into my mind after after I had exhausted everybody else. (laughs) And I want to talk to you about maybe a new potential job. God really has used Dave to shape the direction of my life. Who knew? I don't think, I think without him, I wouldn't have spent 16 years in church planting. But he just kept investing in me and telling me, Peter, you are, you are, hey, what, what was his word? Oh, a serial church planter. <laughs> he said, you have a problem. You're addicted to church planting. And I'm going to make sure you do it well. What a blessing. The two Daves. All right, this isn't an exhaustive list. So um, every time you make a list, somebody's not on it, which is the nature of lists. Okay, next is my spiritual director. Uh, her name is Helen Sapero. She has been directing me for about four years. And she, every month, the Holy Ghost possesses this little woman. She's about this short. And uh, God speaks. 
And every month I sit there in my chair or lying in my bed on my phone. She lives in Alaska. And every month she makes me cry. Every month she somehow touches some parts of me that are just crusted over, you know, with stuff and life and lies and, and feelings. And she cuts through the chase. You know, the last thing I was reading through some of my notes And this is something that said to me that just wowed me. And we were talking about how I have a little margin in my life, and I'm not very good at with margin. Um, and, uh, and, and she said to me, she said, Peter, do you know what margin is? She said, margin is saying yes to the moment before it arrives. Like she said, if you're going to have a meeting with somebody, if you take 15 minutes to not do anything and just sit there and just do nothing and experience margin, that's saying yes, embracing the moment, that meeting, before it happens. And when that person shows up, you're ready. Or if your kid shows up or if you come home, spend 15 minutes, she said, before you leave the office, just sit there for 15 minutes and then go home. And then when your kids rush over to you and all try to hug you at the same time, you're not going to be annoyed by that. That's so good. Imagine how much your life would improve if you practiced that. That you had embraced the moment before it arrived. How much more love and joy and hope would flow. How much more room there would be for truth and good things to happen. Amazing, right? That's Helen. And also, you know, I pay her $30 a month. And you're, actually, the church pays for that. So thank you so much uh, for my spiritual direction. Okay, next is Ross. His, he's Ross Peterson. He's relatively new in my life. He's come into my life in the last uh, six years or so. But he's the president of Midwest Ministries, which is... Um, uh, organization that helps pastors uh, primarily and uh, their lar largest clientele is the evangelical covenant church our denomination and uh, he writes me an email about once a month and he says to me so peter how's it going and then about once a quarter i call him and i say ross here's how it's going and i'm so excited to have him in my life because everything he says is gold You have people like that in your life? Just, just gold just dribbling out of their mouth. Like if they drooled, I would just go there and catch their drool. So precious. But the problem is he doesn't talk a lot. He mostly asks questions. But when he does speak, it's just gold. Man, it's good. And, um, You know, he's a big reason I'm here with you at this church. I was reading through my exit report. I was formally assessed by him for two and a half days. And he wrote this exit report for me, um, this uh, four-page report. And in this report, there's this one phrase that I took out here, and I want to read it to you. He said, my recommendation is that Peter asks the question, what kind of soil can he be planted in so that... He can take root. And that question that I was asking, what kind of soil do I need so that I can truly take root so I don't just take off? 
because I'm good at taking off. But how do I take root? And he said, taking root is about the soil. He said, what kind of soil do you need? And that question brought me to Mercer Island Covenant Church. Man, amazing prophet in my life. Okay, next. Um, I'm going to, once again, do a rare thing and tell a Susie story here. Um, she has spoken to me, and uh, lately she's been finding, last several years, she's been finding her voice more, so she's been a little more verbally prophetic. But even before that, she really was the prophet in my life in many ways. And uh, if I think about what, how she has spoken into my life, my biggest answer would be through the ministry of acceptance. Like Susie is not a critical person. I, I really hold on that fort by myself pretty well. She, her in, instinct, her just, if you cut her, she bleeds acceptance. If you cut her, she bleeds support. She's immediately for you and on your side. She can meet Satan himself and she would still be searching for something good to connect with. That's Susie, right? And here's what I've learned from Susie. That acceptance is the door through which transformation happens. That all of my analyzing and critical skills have yielded less change than her acceptance of me. That's powerful. It's so much easier to pick on something. And uh, I want to just, one little story of how she's uh, helping me. This is a recent one. This isn't like the, a special one. It just happened to have happened recently. But um, about three days after it happened, uh, Susie said, Peter, can I talk to you about something? And I said, yeah, feeling a little bit scared because she doesn't usually do that. Don't you hate it when people say, can I talk to you? Just what did I do wrong, right? Um, can I talk to him? She said, she, she said you, know, um, you know, a few days ago when you and I were in the bathroom with the girls together getting them ready, um, you, said, you talked to me in a way that was demeaning. And, and you did it in front of the kids. And I, I feel really hurt by that. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I will only demean you when nobody else is around. <laughs> <coughs> No, but it broke my heart that her feelings were hurt. I don't care if she gets annoyed or mad at me, but for her to feel hurt, I don't want to do that. And I really repented of it, and I've been thinking about it ever since. I feel terrible that I hurt my wife's feelings. I did it in front of the kids. It just stinks, you know? And in that gentle rebuke, in that small but firm request for love, I heard the voice of God. She's a prophet in my life. Okay, last but not least. These are my four girls. And um, over there, there's, that's Gwen. She's uh, probably in her 80s now. But I've known her since uh, before I was married. When I was uh, planting a church in New York, my very uh, first one, I had this group from New York City, inner city New York, that I wanted to uh, bring up to a rural place, a beautiful place. And so I started looking up in uh, Vermont's directory for a, a, a vacation place to bring up my group. And uh, everybody just 
basically hung up on me when they heard that we were a group from New York City. But Gwen picked up the phone and she said, <clears throat> oh my goodness, I have been praying and praying that God only sends the people he wants up here to come up here. So please come. And so we went up there. It was a small group of us, a leadership team. And I fell in love with Gwen. And at that time, I wasn't married yet. And I was uh, contemplating breaking off my engagement to Susie. Uh, <clears throat> because two weeks before, she had broken up the engagement with me. And I just felt it was my turn. And so um, that's another story. And so I was just heartbroken. And I'm sitting there in Gwen's furnace room with two chairs facing each other. And she's sitting there holding my hands. And she's listening to me pour out my heart about um, about Susie. And uh, she listened and listened and listened. And she asked me this one question. I still remember like it was yesterday. She said, Peter, do you love her? It's so simple. It's so cliche. I know. I thought about it, though. And there's a way that she asked it. And she asked it more with her eyes than she did with her words. And I said, yeah, I do. And then he, she just said, Peter, listen to your heart. And I married Susie anyway. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> oh, I love setting you guys up. Um, but this is Gwen. And let me tell you this. She has gone through, she's been through hell and back multiple times. Multiple cancer survivor. Her house burned down. Her husband died on her. Her husband was in prison, uh, uh, estranged from all of her kids. Uh, she's adopted multiple children and uh, just gone through so much heartache and pain. And, and my hope is one day to fly Gwen out here when she can. And I want to I give her like an hour to tell you, her, tell you all her story because it's just amazing. It's just, it's just, you know, um, the, the price of character is so expensive. You know, the price of beauty is so expensive. If you want to be a beautiful person, if you want to be like Jesus, it's expensive. Right? But she's paid the price, and she continues to pay the price in many ways. But we go to her. She's the face of Jesus to us. I never think about what would Jesus do. Because Jesus is too, too God. But I always think, Susie and I always ask, what would Gwen do? That's more accessible to us, you know? And I remember one of the hardest things that Susie and I went through was when Susie was pregnant with Sophia, our third child. Very early on in the pregnancy, Susie was diagnosed, uh, misdiagnosed, I should say, with something called placental mesenchymal dysplasia. Let me read you the definition. Which is characterized by placenta megaly and may be mistaken for molar pregnancy, both clinically and macroscopically, because of the presence of grape-like vesicles. It may be associated with a completely normal fetus, a fetus with growth restriction, or a fetus with features of Beckwith-Weedman syndrome, which is what Susie was diagnosed with. The third one, Beckwith-Weedman syndrome. For nine months, we didn't sleep. Each week, she went to at least one uh, doctor's appointment. Finally, we went to see uh, the world premier specialist on this at Cornell Medical Center. And he said, yep, 
you have mesenchymal dysplasia and the baby you have within you was actually a twin, but the baby that's there now somehow absorbed this twin into herself and she will be born with Beckwith-Weedman syndrome which means that she's probably going to die. Susie's was going, Susie had a 50% chance, he said, of developing uh, uterine cancer. She's going to have to have a total hysterectomy. The baby's going to die anyway. The only thing they can do is immediate termination of the fetus. And we wrestled and we wrestled and we cried and we prayed. We reached out to our church community. We reached out to our family and friends. And the whole community was split. We even reached out to Dr. Timothy Johnson, who's the medical expert of ABC. Do you know that he's also an ordained covenant minister? And I was talking to him on the phone. I sent him all our medical records and test results. And he said, yup, it's mesenchymal dysplasia. I recommend termination. And he said, Peter, this is not a a moral issue. The the life of the mother is at stake here. You have to terminate the uh, pregnancy. And Susie and I thought about it, wrestled with it. And at the end of the day, Susie and I couldn't do it. Not because we were some moralists about abortion. We had what we believed on paper. But when it became personal, and we had two others already, and the baby within wasn't just a fetus. It was a child to us, it was, because we already had two children. And so we decided to go through with the pregnancy. And I think one of the first things I want to know when I get to heaven is what happened to this? Because on the date of delivery, our doctor called in all these other doctors. Our little delivery room was filled with medical professionals, all wanting to see this baby being born because mesenchymal dysplasia with the Beckwith-Weenum syndrome combination, Susie was number 13 in the history of medicine. Very rare. And so all these medical professionals are there, and Susie's about to deliver this baby, and the baby comes out. They see the bifurcated umbilical cord and everything, but you know what? No sign of mesenchymal dysplasia. We don't know if Susie was healed or if it was a misdiagnosis. But how can all those doctors have been wrong? I don't know. But the point of this story is we wanted to eventually talk to nobody because everybody had an opinion and nobody was being helpful, including our parents, save Gwen. Gwen is the only one we talk to every week. Gwen, the voice, the angel, the Jesus in our lives, Gwen. And I wanted to share all of these mentor stories with you because they play such a large role in my life. But I want to inspire you and encourage you to have mentors in your life. Do you have mentors in your life? Do you have prophets in your life? You should be able to list out five to six people who speak into your life on a regular basis. If you don't, your value, your quality as a human being will begin to diminish until your life is finishing and you won't finish well, chances are. This is the gift that can keep on giving. It doesn't matter how holy you think you are or how smart you think you are, how competent you think you are. Nobody is good enough, not for good, not for long, to last a lifetime. We all will succeed or fail based on our support system. 
Who has the power to speak into your life on a regular basis? Who gets to ask you questions? Who gets to confront you? Who gets to call you to the mat? It doesn't matter if you've lived a successful life up to now. Second law of thermodynamics says we're all going to disintegrate. We're going to tend towards chaos. Not everybody who's aging is aging well. You need mentors. You need voices in your life. Who are they? This is the challenge and the gift. I shudder to think who I would be. My wife shudders to think who I would be without mentors. Susie doesn't have to worry about me because people call me and I make phone calls. I have coffee. I have lunch. People check up on me on a regular basis. I actually made a list that was far longer than this. And you know how many I had? I had 18. You know how I know this? Because I had 18 pictures. I deleted most of them. 18 people who are speaking into my life right now. Aren't you so glad to know that as a church that your pastor has outside voices in his life? Doesn't that comfort you? Doesn't that warm your heart? What about you? Your loved ones, your friends, your coworkers, they all know all about you. They're just not telling you. Seriously, ask them. Buy them dinner and say the sole purpose is to get you to tell me what you see. And they will. And the only one surprised will be you. Okay? But all of these mentors eventually fail. That's why I have 18 of them and not just one. Because no mentor, no prophet is perfect. Remember, they're just an interpreter. They're not the final actual authority. So another way to say this, the final word, is there's a gap between us and God. So we have a prophet standing there in that gap. But there's also a gap between the prophet and God. And the question is, who stands there? If the gap between us and God are occupied by the prophet, who's occupying the space between the prophet and God? In Sunday school class, the correct answer is Jesus. Jesus is God's perfect and final word to us. Jesus is the exact representation of God's heart and mind toward us. He himself says he is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to read you these four verses, and then we'll conclude. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 1 John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father. Notice the only. Full of grace and truth. John chapter 10 verse 30, 
I and the Father are one. John chapter 14 verse 19. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I'm sorry, there's six, not uh, four. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ, Son of God, is God's perfect prophet. He is God's final word spoken to us, over us, for us, to be in us. The word of God is in me, alive and active, in the person and presence of Jesus Christ. I live and move and have my being by him, Colossians says, it's by his spirit that I am alive, that I'm regenerating. It's Jesus speaking to me. And scriptures also testify that he has spilled his blood, that this prophet has given his life so that this distance between God and I might be bridged. So that my sins might be forgiven and that I would be separated no more from God himself. Today is Communion Sunday. And uh, I want to share a little insight with you about communion that I learned last week. Have you ever heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? It's uh, traditionally, uh, it's, it's one of these phrases that has lost all meaning. It has, it's come to mean the exact opposite. It's like the word fellowship. We'll get to that in another sermon. But it's like, it has, it means the exact opposite of its original intent. And so the way we understand it now, we understand it to mean that blood, that is siblings or mom and dad, it's much stronger than water. And we don't know what water means. We just know that blood is stronger than. Right? That's how we come to mean, understand what this means. But this phrase actually is a shortened form of the original phrase. The original phrase, and you may not have known this, is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Ah. Doesn't that just clarify everything? It means that my relationship with those to whom I am joined in covenant is to be considered of more value than the relationship with a brother with whom I may have shared the womb. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 27, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in this act, he binds us to himself. And he says, Nothing can separate you and me. Nothing. 
ever can separate, break the bonds of this blood covenant. For blood is thicker than water. I want to invite you to the table this morning. I want to remind you that it is God's desire to speak words into your life, life-giving words, life-transforming words. And his primary means of doing that is through other people. Even though, even though he is God, this is his chosen means of communication. And his final choice, his ultimate means of conveying to us his love was through his son, his final word, who shed his blood for us. And he invites you to partake of this covenant, to be reminded of what he has done, so that he can have his final word over us, that we are dearly loved, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In our church, we practice an old 5th century method called intinction. What that means is you take the bread and you dip it into the juice. And when you are ready, take of the elements together. And as you do, have your moment with the Lord. If you are not a believer here this morning, if you don't label yourself a Christian, we invite you to accept Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior. And let this act of communion be your first act as a new member of the family of God. Here are now the words of institution. On the night in which Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took the bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and as you do remember me. And then after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that's poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And as you do, remember me. Ushers, would you please come forward?